I think the basic premise in massive hemorrhage is really just simply to turn the faucet off. Those precious red blood cells do us no good outside of the blood vessels. So if we can keep them inside the blood vessels and stop hemorrhage from, from the blood leaving the body, we have a better chance of preventing shock, which is ultimately the primary indicator for survival in trauma. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with former Army Medical Corps officer and current emergency medicine physician, John M. Krauschhorn. John talks about his pathway to becoming a physician and what led him to join the military as a doctor soon after the events of 9-11. He describes his experiences and lessons learned deployed to Southwest Asia, as well as his unit's mission during Hurricane Katrina. John is an innovator and inventor, and he relates the story behind his involvement in the development of the abdominal and aortic junctional tourniquet, and how it's been used to save lives on the battlefield and at home. John also gives us a glimpse of the future of treating severe hemorrhage in the pre-hospital setting, and explains how to get an idea from the bench to the bedside. If you're interested in seeing John demonstrate the junctional tourniquet, please check out the videos on our Wardox YouTube channel. Find out more about Dr. Krauschhorn and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome former Army, current emergency medicine physician, Dr. John M. Krauschhorn to Wardocs. John, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, glad to be here, guys. Dr. Krauschhorn, please share with us your early inspirations and how your journey began from graduating with a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering to your decision to pursue a career in military medicine or in medicine. Well, I went to Auburn University and had a degree in, in electrical engineering and was all set for a job within the power industry. But my best friend in the world was joining the Air Force and he was in undergraduate pilot training out in Lubbock, Texas. And I went to go and visit him. And I have this very distinct memory of going out there and going to the officer club with him. And he was introducing me to the guy who was the top stick in front of, in the class in front of him. And he was describing this solo flight he had taken in this small T-38 aircraft. It was a wild ride. He, he was going fast. He's spinning the aircraft. And ultimately, what I remember is him going real fast, screaming over the open channel on the uh, radio, they pay me to do this. You know, and it just sounded like so much fun. My buddy was going to be a pilot. He loved doing that. There was a part of me that couldn't see being an electrical engineer as being a hobby, you might say. So I think uh, I, it changed my perspective. I wanted to have a job that would be both interesting and challenging. And I found that in medicine. I think my story is one of innovation. And I think part of innovation is not accepting the normative situation as the only choice or maybe the right choice all the time. So when you're faced with something as simple as, well, I've got this college degree and I need to go off and work, maybe that's not the only path that's available out there. So that's sort of what changed my path to medicine. Tell us a little bit about how you made the decision to join the Army. I know this happened soon after 9-11 and it's kind of a profound decision for a lot of people. Can you tell us about your decision-making process? 
I watched the towers fall from the pediatric intensive care unit where I was training to emergency medicine. I was on procedure rotation that month and, and it was just striking, devastating. I joined the Mississippi National Guard as a flight surgeon with the 185th Aviation Group. And we deployed to Iraq in 2004. It was the first all-guard aviation brigade to deploy to combat. And everybody had these cool task force names like Talon and Dagger and Warhorse. But our commander was a catfish farmer in Mississippi. And so we were task force catfish. And so it, it was wonderful. I was definitely in bigger shoes than I think I was prepared for. I was serving as brigade surgeon of the uh, task force. I think my appreciation for innovation in the military really began there. As the command surgeon for the brigade, I was part of commander special staff. And I remember one day him coming in and asking us, can we do space available aviation during war? And we were flying equipment and personnel to destinations and then returning empty. And I actually remember him saying, seems like an awful waste of fuel. And over the course of the next few months, he put up shacks on every forward operating base with our personnel, with the flight schedules. And they began coordinating moving packs on return flights that crisscrossed the entire theater, really. And uh, during that year in Iraq, we kept 2.1 million personnel off MSR routes reducing the IED risk. It was, it was a very pivotal thing to see, well, what can you do? One of my best friends was my PA during the deployment, Colonel John Conroy. He was a captain then. He just retired last month after 41 years of service. He and the doc I replaced thought it was possible to run a full aviation medicine clinic while deployed. That's not something that had ever been done before. Generally, aviation crews are given a pass on flight physicals for the year if, if it comes due when they're deployed during war and they're given extensions, but they thought maybe we could set up a full clinic and we did. And we actually did everything from class one flight physicals to everything else an aviation medicine clinic would do. So I think that kind of thought process was, it was very empowering and it, and it helped us feel like we were maybe doing more for the mission. Where were you in your training scenario? Were you done training in emergency medicine or tell us about that? When the unit got orders to go, I had a few months left in my residency program and my commander would not let me join the unit until I finished my program. He was just looking out for me and I appreciate that. And so there was a doc from Connecticut that did the first few months with my unit and then I joined them in late spring that year uh, after I finished my requirements for residency and stayed with them through the end of that year. So now you were also the lead physician in Mississippi during the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Tell us about the difference in Mississippi and Louisiana and their response and their role in that mission for the Katrina disaster. We were the Mississippi Aviation Unit. In fact, in the All Guard Brigade, we had guard units from Hawaii. They were one of our heavy lift uh, Chinook companies. We had units from Illinois, a battalion out of Illinois, Combat Aviation Battalion. And then we had a unit out of Louisiana. And so the Louisiana aviation folks were actually in our task force. And by the time Katrina fell, everybody had made it back home. We were sort of staggered in, in a sense. So the 185 came back right around Christmas time and everybody else came back in the next few months. When Katrina hit, all service members in the guard were called up from Mississippi. And I remember getting over to Mississippi the night the storm was hitting. Right after the storm passed, we took off and I think I flew 
maybe 8.2 hours with U.S. search and rescue folks that day after the storm. I wasn't the senior doc in Mississippi. We had a two docs that uh, were above me, the state surgeon who remained in Jackson, the state capital, and then the another doc who outranked me, who went down. We were based out of Gulfport, and he sort of ran Gulfport, the medicine there. So Gulfport went from a small contingent of troops uh, to all the troops that were responding were going to be based out of Gulfport. And so I was the aviation doc for the unit. And what that put me in was the role where I was sort of overseeing the field medical response that the military could bring to bear. And it's interesting because I think that the living conditions were far more austere in southern Mississippi after Katrina than anything I experienced in Iraq or deployed life anywhere. But sometimes solutions and innovation is born out of necessity. And at times, they're almost born out of boredom. So... At Katrina, we were at the airfield at Gulfport, and the U.S. Air Force, or the Air Guard actually, had deployed a hospital unit. It was an EMEDS plus 25 basic, but they didn't have their hospital. So all their personnel were sitting in a big hangar, just sort of twiddling their thumbs, not being able to really do anything. And at one point, I figured out I knew two of their officers. Uh, They attended the same emergency medicine residency program I had. And our unit was running the airspace, but we were also flying food, water, and ice missions where FEMA were sort of directing that, that there was need. And I thought, well, what if we put a doc and maybe a tech, a nurse on these flights? And so while the crew chief of the helicopter is dumping all the food, water, and ice, they could go out and look and see if there were any medical needs. And if there was somebody that needed evacuation, we would go ahead and take them. If it was a good-sized community that had need, we would set up a return date and go and do a clinic. The helicopters would drop us off. Most of the roads in the south six counties in Mississippi were unpassable. There were no doctor's office opens, no pharmacies opened, and only two hospitals in the south six counties, So, which were just simply overwhelmed. So it was, ended up being very successful. We were able even to have some medicines filled for these patients. And then The other thing that we ended up doing was evacuating patients from one of the hospitals over to Panama City. The Air Force critical care transport resource was there, but they didn't have authorization to use their airplanes to evacuate patients. It can be a complicated process for the state governor to request that resource, and and it just hadn't happened. But we had a, a... a hospital that was literally overrun, and our Chinooks can carry 24 litter patients. And so we actually um, used the Air Force critical care transport team and their equipment on a Chinook to evacuate uh, patients out of a hospital. In fact, actually, the uh, the Air Force uh, folks were concerned that the Army bus on the Chinook would blow all of their equipment. The Army folks were concerned that the Air Force equipment would blow the bus on the Chinook. So there was a little coordination. They had to come down and do some quick testing, but we did. It was a successful evacuation of, I think the first time an Air Force critical care team had ever evacuated 24 patients, some of which were ventilated on an Army platform. So we, we did a couple of fun things during that response. I was down there for the first five weeks, and then we moved north and Big Army sort of came in and took over. 
So your interaction with federal medicine wasn't only with the Guard and the Army, but it was also with Department of Homeland Security and the FBI. Can you tell us a little bit about those experiences as well? I became interested in tactical medicine really in the late 1990s when I was in medical school. I volunteered with law enforcement. I went through CONTOMS, which was sort of the only game in town if you wanted to learn that skill set. CONTOMS stood for counter-narcotic and tactical operation medical support. It was run through the Uniform Health Science University. I met a guy who ended up becoming a mentor of mine. He was a doctor. He was also a police officer, and he worked with the National Tactical Officer Association. And he agreed to help me with the scholarly project that all emergency medicine residents are required to complete during residency. It ended up being a collection of 10 articles that were published through a journal called Topics in Emergency Medicine. And right after we began the project, President George W. Bush named Dr. Richard Carmona the 17th U.S. Surgeon General. He was my um, mentor. And that was my sort of first introduction to tactical medicine. I really became interested in it and met a lot of folks through Dr. Carmona that provided a lot of guidance to me. One of those was another mentor, Dr. Bill Fabry. And after my time in the Army, he opened up the opportunity, invited me to come and be a part of FBI operational medicine. The contract that supplied that support was through Medical College of Georgia, and it was being run by Dr. Richard Schwartz, who is one of the most accomplished physicians and smartest innovators I've ever known. He's a partner in most of my professional endeavors related to in innovation. He's the co-inventor of the abdominal aortic and junctional tourniquet. And he has more energy and the, somehow the ability to enjoy this crazy life that we have going. But the privilege with the Department of Justice was both in training special agents going to Afghanistan and Iraq, working with the FBI's Advanced Capability Medic Program, and then the hostage rescue team. And it was very similar to experiences within special operations that you had a, a group of professionals that were just very interested in learning the skills and doing good. And they, they were wonderful to work with. Uh, still still are. I, I technically am still on the roster for deployments, although I have not been with the FBI in quite some time. So did they have any cooler names than Task Force Catfish for their, some of their operations? Yeah, yeah. So, oh, by far, but they were, it was sort of entering that, that space that the hostage rescue team worked. But it's, it was, what's very interesting is that their medics, we, we were doing some training and the medics were coming saying, listen, I, I have the trauma stuff down. And we would train it. We would go through a lot of different scenarios related to different trauma things. But I remember one of them coming up and said, but I need to know how to look in ears and noses. I mean, because they're doing sick call and they're basically fulfilling the role of a battalion surgeon, if you will, sometimes going out for deployments that can last generally five to 45 days, but every once in a while could go a little bit longer than that. But the, the role within tactical medicine began sort of after the army with the FBI but Medical College of Georgia and Richard Schwartz opened up several other opportunities. And one of them was with the National Tactical Officer Association. There was a partnership between industry, academia, and the National Tactical Officer Association to come up with a competency-based definition of tactical emergency medical support. And I chaired the working group that was responsible for that. And ultimately, it became the competency-based definition uh, and guidelines that both the NTOA used, and we presented it to 
uh, Department of Homeland Security, and they began to use it in their 23 agencies, and it grew, but remained open source. In fact, it's still a project that's alive and constantly being worked on and, and changed. So you mentioned innovation, and you and Dr. Schwartz had developed the abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet. What gap or challenge in medical care were you seeking to address, and what were healthcare professionals using prior to the abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet? You know, I think requirements-driven innovation is sort of really the heart of the matter. And, and I'll explain. I think when, when one returns from deployment, it's common to write up after-action reports. Sometimes we're writing up handoff documents to be used by those that are replacing us. After-action reports or AARs identify items and issues that both require improvement or sustainment. And rarely, in my experience, does anyone put a lot of thought into the actual solutions to those items that need improvement. They're very capable of pointing out the things that didn't work, but not always, and, and part of this because they, it's not their job to find the solution, but I think we all have the ability to be an innovator. We all have the ability to come up with solutions. Improvement can be to a process or procedure or solutions to more difficult issues. So June 17th, 2005, a hero among heroes, Bob Horgan, died in a raid in Iraq. The, the building was breached and he was shot on entry. The medic pulled him from the breach point. Four minutes from the point of wounding, he was placed on a helicopter and flown to a waiting surgical team 12 minutes away. And he was dead when he got there. There was really nothing that could be done. Solutions were attempted, including teaching senior assault medics how to open the pelvis, ligate iliac arteries, but that's very difficult in the field. And it's not an easily sustainable task. We've been teaching medics to put a knee into the mid-abdomen. So the, the idea of knee boa, sort of a play on words from Reboa, it's not really a new thought, but uh, it's a, basically a pressure point for the aorta. But you can't continue to care for the casualty, move the casualty, and keep your knee there. So in 2006, through work at Medical College of Georgia, there were some residents that were looking for a scholarly project. And Richard and I suggested they look at the weight required to stop blood flow through the aorta. And they found it was about 80 to 140 pounds of pressure over the umbilicus, and it would stop flow through the pelvis and the femoral arteries would have no flow by ultrasound. They presented it at the American College of Emergency Physicians meeting in seven. And I remember eating dinner with these young physicians and uh, telling them that we knew some folks that would likely pay for a device that could do what they proved could be done. But uh, I think they were more interested in getting out and making some money than continuing doing research. So that night, Richard and I talked about a device and, and the following February put in for two provisional patents, one mechanical and one pneumatic. And we began doing research on it in 2009. By 2011, we had human and animal data and working prototypes and requested the first 510K clearance from the FDA. They responded in eight days, granting us clearance. And I think the gap that we were trying to fill specifically was pelvic bleeding. And that's the Bob Horgan uh, case. And ultimately, junctional bleeding. But there really weren't any solutions other than direct pressure and then trying to get a casualty to treatment facility as fast as possible. 
So a lot of times when inventors are coming up with new ideas, the initial prototypes are kind of wild stories of, hey, what can I find in the closet or what can I do? Any kind of crazy stories about putting together this junctional tourniquet at the beginning? The, the very first prototype that I made, we had this idea. I went to a local bike store and I went in and I asked the guy, I said, hey, I, I, and he could see I was needing some help because I'm looking through inner tubes. And I said, I need the fattest, biggest, but smallest inner tube that you have. And he's like, what kind of bike is it? And I said, well, it's not actually a bike. I'm, I'm making a prototype of a medical device. And I had sewed a little pouch that it would go into and made a, had a little base plate that was made off of a sort of an abdominal stabilizer for a backpack waist belt. And so he helped me and we found a, a little inner tube and I inflated it. And, and that was one of the first prototypes that we used. And interestingly, fast forward uh, seven, eight years, I was at the Special Operations Medical Association meeting. And at the time, I think it was down in Tampa. And we had filled the device and we're having some success with it. And I had this Special Forces medic, this 18 Delta comes up to me and says, hey, do you live in Birmingham? And I said, yes, I do. And he goes, did you come into a bike shop to find an inner tube for a prototype of this device? I said, yeah, I did. He goes, I sold you that inner tube. And uh, he had joined the military, become a special forces medic. And he said when he was in Afghanistan, he got the, the device and he's, he goes, I just wonder if this has anything to do with that guy who came in my bike store back in the day. So it, it's funny how those, those, it's a small world. You talk to people long enough, you can make all kinds of connections. So take us through a situation. So you, you have a, a patient who's injured. Our listeners aren't probably, a lot of them not understanding exactly what this junctional tourniquet is that you're talking about. Can you give us just a brief overview of how it's applied and what exactly it is that we're talking about now? Junctional bleeding uh, really refers to bleeding where the extremities join the torso. So the groin, the axilla, and, and to be honest, the neck is also a junctional area. There are places where it's very hard to get hemorrhage control. So if you're having bleeding, these are areas where you can't place a tourniquet. There are also areas where sometimes hemostatic agents aren't enough because the cavity may be very large. If you have bleeding in the pelvis, you can almost pack the pelvis, if you can get enough in there, but sometimes that's just simply not enough. The groin space can be disrupted by trauma to the point that hemostatics are very difficult. They can be overwhelmed by the amount of blood. And so I think the basic premise in massive hemorrhage is really just simply to turn the faucet off. Those precious red blood cells do us no good outside of the blood vessels. So if we can keep them inside the blood vessels and stop hemorrhage from, from the blood leaving the body, we have a better chance of preventing shock, which is ultimately the primary indicator for survival in trauma. So quite literally, the chance of survival increases with, with every drop of blood we prevent from leaving the body. The chance of mortality increases with every drop that leaves the body. So the device is a uh, belt with a wedge-shaped bladder, basically. It's fastened around the patient and the wedge has been placed over the target that we want to stop flow through. There are three targets, the groin, the axilla, and the abdominal aortic bifurcation, which is underneath the umbilicus. 
The wedge is about eight inches wide, so you don't have to be exact with placement. At one point, Colonel Shackelford, former head of the Joint Trauma Systems, called it the no-brainer device because you didn't have to have anatomical knowledge or any specific medical knowledge to know how to place it correctly. If you can follow a pictograph, you can put it on successfully. So there are some other adjuncts between trying to just put pressure on from your knee to definitive surgery to address ongoing bleeding. And other things, you mentioned Reboa, there's combat gauze, there's expandable foams. Those are clearly a little bit more invasive, but how does this junctional tourniquet compare to those things that are being talked about coming out to closer to point of injury? I, I will tell you that I think that the the ones that are available right now in the pre-hospital space, the tourniquets and hemorrhage hemostatic agents are extremely important tools that have been added to the toolbox and have saved just many lives. One of my best friends was the co-inventor of the cat tourniquet. He put the first one on in combat. His wife led a group of women that sewed the first 2,000 used in combat in their kitchen. If bleeding can be stopped with a traditional tourniquet, or for that matter, with a hemostatic gauze, then use it. And I think the, the, the idea of going beyond that point is when bleeding doesn't respond to those measures, or if it makes sense given the nature of the trauma. Those measures were never really meant for pelvic bleeding, for instance. So I, I will say that the, in 2013, the Brits were the first to save a casualty in combat. They were on the Merck helicopter evacuating an Afghan soldier who had been wounded by an IED. He lost both legs uh, below the knees, had a lot of holes in his pelvis and above. They were giving him blood, TXA, factor seven, and he was still dying. I think his entitled CO2 was less than 10. They applied the AAJT and he began to stabilize it. His entitled CO2 rose to 60 within 30 seconds. And he survived and ultimately was able to leave the uh, hospital neurologically intact. I put it on a couple of patients in 2013 as well. One shot through the tricep and had two holes in his axilla. He lost six centimeters of his brachial uh, and axillary arteries. He had no measurable vital signs when he was dumped off in the ambulance bay. I applied it under the affected axilla, inflated it, and the bladder pushed against a soft tissue on the chest wall, and it actually squeezes off flow in the subclavian artery under the clavicle at the midclavicular space, which is important because you can actually stop bleeding in a full shoulder disarticulation injury uh, with the device. Um, a few weeks later, I placed it on a guy that was shot through the upper left leg. Uh, in surgery was found to have a transected femoral artery uh, and again was unconscious, had very thready vital signs. Uh, I applied one cat tourniquet above the hole and we began to resuscitate him. Then it began leaking from the hole and I could not get a second cat tourniquet above the first. Oftentimes legs need two cat tourniquets or extremity tourniquets. So I put the AJT on his groin, inflated it, and then we resuscitated him to consciousness to the point that he complained about the cat hurting. So we actually left the cat in place, released the tension on it. The AJT over the groin wasn't as painful. We left that in place and transferred him to a level one trauma center where they were able to fix his art arterial injury. And he actually walked out of the hospital three days later. Now, I remember in southern Afghanistan, we were training with the junctional tourniquets. I never had to put one on, but I'll tell you that as a vascular surgeon, I I am fully aware that injuries to the junction, so 
underneath the collarbone to the shoulder and the groin are one of the most difficult injuries to fix and repair. Now, do you have any, and the reason I ask this question and say that that way is that uh, one of the things that we had planned for was we didn't want resourced at my role too to perform that definitive repair that can take a long time, particularly in the junctions. We had planned to evacuate those patients back from the roll two to roll three once we had maintained hemorrhage control because the flight was 30, 40 minutes. Do you have any examples of those types of patients that were transported with a junctional tourniquet on from one roll to the next? Yeah, so several actually. And in fact, growing data coming out of Ukraine, they've got uh, a bunch of the tourniquets over there and we've been able to track about three dozen LifeSave that had a roll one application to a roll two and we've been working actually with a vascular surgeon over there who was the senior medical officer for the 59th Motorized Brigade. And they used the device at the roll two as well, just simply to stop the bleeding, turn the faucet off, because some of these wounds from artillery hits are just mangled. And so it's, it's hard to even identify where the bleeding is coming from, how many vascular structures are injured. And, and it takes a little while just to identify the anatomy to know what to fix. One of the reasons that the AJT became the junctional tourniquet of choice with special operations was when we apply it, we then move patients, obviously. And in that role one environment, moving means bending, hoisting, dragging at times. And the ability to move that patient without losing hemorrhage control was obvious necessity. Because if we lose hemorrhage control before we get to the role two, then my surgeons start behind the eight ball. If somebody is in shock on their arrival, and we, we have ways of trying to help with that. Now we're deploying blood more forward than we have in the past. So sometimes the evacuation resource, even if the conventional unit on the ground doesn't have blood, can actually provide blood in route. But stopping the flow is, is important and, and, and not losing that hemorrhage control during movement is also very important. I think that's a, a great point that you just brought up because that was that was our plan. If you only had one injury and you didn't say an abdominal exploration, but you were also bleeding from one of your junctions, the junctional tourniquet was our plan to buy us time to explore the abdomen, try to find, because you're pri- trying to prioritize in medicine, injury one, injury two, injury three, which one's going to kill somebody first? Well, the aorta is bigger than the iliac arteries and the femoral arteries, but then if you can get control it with a tourniquet, you have this space in between that really is a difficult area to to not only get hemorrhage control, but uh, perform reconstruction. How do you know exactly how much pressure you need to inflate that bladder to achieve the desired hemostatic result? So in all of the human studies that were performed in the US and in the UK on the device, the maximum pressure required externally in the bladder to stop blood flow through the aorta and at the junctional sites was 230 millimeters of mercury pressure. So the device is the only junctional tourniquet that actually limits the pressure. The device has a manometer on it that looks very similar to a pressure infuser bag, okay, that you would put a a bag of IV fluids in and pump up to get the IV fluids running quicker. So the manometer will go green at 250. And so when we're training it, we just tell the guys, go to green, go to green, just pump it up until you see green. Now it will turn red at 300 millimeters mercury pressure. And there's an internal relief valve that will bleed it back down to green. 
And so if somebody's just excited, they pump up and keep pumping and they pump it too much, it will regulate the pressure back down. And it's also important when we're air evacuating somebody. So as we go up in altitude and ambient air pressure decreases, internal bladder pressure increases. So it prevents overpressurization of the device. Both the Navy and the Army tested it up to 15,000 feet in ambient pressure and found it to uh, function that way. Because the, the other junctional tourniquets, the Institute for Surgical Research found that the combat ready clamp, which is a mechanical device, and the jet, which is another mechanical device that works in the junctions, required almost 800 millimeters of mercury pressure on the tissues themselves. It was enough to do permanent nerve damage and cause tissue necrosis. Johnson at Wake Forest looked at this SAM junctional tourniquet and found it to be about 740 millimeters of pressure on the skin for it to work appropriately. And part of that's because these devices are focusing the pressure in small points. Ours is an eight-inch wide bladder. And so the larger surface area means that we can achieve the cessation of vascular flow under that bladder with lower pressures. The Navy also tested looking at the pressure in the bladder actually being representative of the exact pressure on the skin. And so, it, which sort of makes sense, if you have the device on tight and you pump it up, the pressure that's being registered in that bladder is the pressure being applied to the skin. I just want to explain something to our listeners so that they can fully understand exactly what you're talking about. Because what you're trying to overcome is the systolic blood pressure of the patient. Because that is the pressure that's perfusing that limb or that area that's bleeding. And you only need enough pressure to overcome the systolic blood pressure of the patient at that time. And so the lower you can get that pressure say in your case 250, and I'm not advocating one over the other, but the lower you can get that pressure at 250, that say the normal systolic is 140, the closer you can get to 140, the less damage you're going to cause to all that surrounding tissue. So if one is 250 and one is 750, the 250 is far superior than the 750 just because you're not causing collateral damage to the surrounding tissue. Absolutely. And a lot of these trauma patients, their pressures are actually quite low at times. And the difference between 250 and the pressure that may be running through that vessel often has to do with the supportive structures around it. So you're trying to collapse everything down to get to that depth of so that the pressure is actually reaching the vessel you're trying to occlude. So just as a comment as a urologist, the talk of high pressure bladders and low flow it's kind of antithetical to me, but I understand it when it, when it comes to bleeding. <laughs> so I, I know you said that Stacey Shackelford called this thing the no-brainer bladder, but hard is it to put on? Who can put it on? How long does it take to put on? Does it take multiple people? Just what are the specifics of getting this thing on and pumped up to green? It comes in the package already assembled. It's the only junctional tourniquet that sort of comes that way. So they rip it open. It comes out. The uh, Brits conducted a study showing that one hour of education with their combat medic technicians, which is the equivalent of our basic medics, a 68 whiskey in the U.S. Army, can apply the device successfully in less than a minute. In fact, their time was, I think, 47 seconds was the mean time for application. The actual application of the device, whether it's applied over the abdomen, the groin, or the axilla, has the same five steps. So you, you take this device out of the package. 
you secure it around the patient. There's a 13-inch long ladder strap that goes into a ratcheting buckle. That ladder strap is long enough to sort of pass it through the small of the back if you're going for the abdomen. There's a mark on the ladder strap that's red, and the first part of the receiving buckle on the ratcheting buckle is, is red. And so we tell the guys, go red to red. So they just engage the ladder strap with a buckle. Then they take all the slack out of the belt system. So the, the device can go around circumferences as large as 64 inches, the uh, as small as 10 inches. So it's the only junctural device that actually can be used on pediatric patients for that reason. Once the slack is out of the system, then the ratcheting buckle is used to take up the and make the device tighter. It completes the tightening process because just like with all tourniquets, you want it tight before the mechanism that's going to occlude the flow of blood is applied. So you, you get it really tight. And then the last step is simply inflating the wedge until the pressure shows green or at 250. And at that point, the flow stopped. You check the pulses in the part of the body you're trying to stop flow to. And then, and then it's good to go. Then you continue to care for the patient. Yeah, I want to point one thing out to our listeners is that when you talk about Reboa, you talk to normally about Reboa being at zone one or zone three. The abdominal tourniquet, when it's applied in this manner to the abdomen, is actually being placed in zone three, just as the Reboa would be placed in a zone <laughs> three location. But I'm curious. So now you have developed this junctional tourniquet. And I know that like in, for instance, the cat tourniquets had multiple iterations. I think we're on like the sixth iterations. Seventh, what were yeah. the <laughs> Seventh now, yeah. So what were the iterations that you had to go through with the junctional tourniquet and sort of the process you went through to identify what worked well and then what needed a little bit of an update? Yeah, sure. So, and you're absolutely right related to its similarity to Zone 3 Reboa. In fact, in 2017, both the Institute for Surgical Research and the U.S. Air Force's 59th Medical Wing published papers that showed it was equivalent to Zone 3 Reboa, uh, both in efficacy and safety. In fact, its use within trauma centers within the U.S. in Miami and Tom Scalia up at Shock Trauma in Baltimore, there, there's a, a very keen interest in, in those two areas. Miami, it's Dr. Enrique Ginsberg, who is with Ryder Jackson as the chief of trauma down there. But in trying to replace zone three Reboa for pelvic fracture bleeding, it's just a, a very quick application. The first life save that they had in Miami with the device was a parachutist that burned in and I had a failure to open malfunction. And she hit the ground, busted her pelvis to hell, always bleeding internally. I had low blood pressure when the medics arrived. They applied the device to stabilize her pelvis and then inflated the device as they realized she had a low blood pressure. And they stopped the bleeding. They got her to the hospital. She underwent uh, damage control surgery and ultimately survived. Uh, in fact, actually, the Miami hospital system just put out um, a uh, press release uh, with her and her story. Uh, it was um, a pretty dramatic save. The, the iterations of the device have been meant to stabilize the device better. Okay, so with, with almost all of these junctional tourniquets, what you're doing is you're either inflating something or you're using mechanical force to press down into the body. And so, for instance, with the mechanical force, let's take the croc, for instance, the combat ready clamp. When you're tightening down this, basically a C-clamp, as, as you tighten it down, the fulcrum point is where it's being tightened. 
And so the higher up it gets, the more it wants to twist. In fact, it's actually why I abandoned our mechanical junctional tourniquet because I couldn't stabilize it. Chris Murphy, the inventor of the croc, actually stabilized it a lot better than, than we had envisioned. But the fulcrum point goes up, it is more likely to uh, want to twist. Same thing with uh, inflating a wedge like on our device. As you inflate the wedge, it will have a tendency to want to either go up or down or rotate. So our device, the belt, incorporates something that looks like a cummerbund on the uh, front of the device. And so the wedge is under that. And the ratcheting buckle, before the ratcheting buckle, there was a windlass. But the idea of trying to get it very tight before you inflate the bladder so that the bladder's displacement is really going into the body, not lifting up off of the body. And in doing so, we find that it, it remains stable, not just in application while the patient is relatively still, but then also while you're moving them. So as an innovator and an inventor, what's next in the treatment of severe hemorrhage? Where are the gaps in the current research? What is, what's next? How can we improve what we're doing at the point of injury, evacuation, pre-hospital? What's going on there? I think the military, military medicine had identified junctional hemorrhage as the primary focus point really around 2013. But now we've got these junctional tourniquets and, and, and some strategies on even how to improvise in some situations, at least with lower junctional hemorrhage solutions. They moved to non-compressible torso hemorrhage as a primary focus point. And so NCTH, the idea of, of solid organ injury or large vessel injury in the abdominal space below the diaphragm. And what's interesting is that one of the concerns initially with the device was if you had a hole above the site of application, would you make that injury worse when you applied the abdominal aortic and junctional tourniquet? So that's been looked at. In 2020, Glasser and colleagues published a study looking at major thoracic vascular injury and the application of Reboa, because at the time, one of the contraindications for Reboa was injuries above the area of application. You, you would make those things worse. But yet they found that it didn't change outcomes. In fact, they concluded that thoracic hemorrhage should not be considered a contraindication for Reboa use. Non-compressible torso hemorrhage the, really focuses, and, and the thorax is a part of the torso, but it really focuses on this abdominal space. And you had mentioned the foams earlier. There are three foams in development, nothing available at this point. The product, I think called Rescue Foam, is in a, a human trial in Pittsburgh that began this year in October. And it, it will probably be the first to market. They're trying to enroll 40 patients, live patients, on its use. But the concept is increasing intra-abdominal compartment pressures will stem or stop the flow of blood from solid organ injuries in the abdominal space. And so the idea of an expandable foam is you apply this by putting the, insert the applicator maybe through the hole that the injury occurred in. You, you sort of tape up the other holes and then you put this foam in and it will expand increasing that compartmental pressure. There was a study completed in September of this year, just a couple of months ago, by the Brits. And it was presented this month, in November 22nd, at the British Trauma Society, showing that the application of the abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet at the abdominal site 
which is already cleared for from a safety standpoint, created the same increase in intra-abdominal compartment pressures as the foams are attempting to produce. Except they didn't have to go to 250. So at 200 millimeters of mercury pressure, they were creating 60 millimeters of compartmental pressure within the intra-abdominal space. But it's titratable. In, in other words, you can take it down if you want to. You can leave it up. The foams, once they're in, are permanent until removed. So you basically create a compartment syndrome, if you will, until a surgeon removes the foam. And in the pre-hospital space, that's sort of what you want. You, you have a solution, you apply, you don't have to touch. It, it creates the cessation of flow, hopefully. And not all the foams get to 60 millimeters of mercury pressure. That's not actually even their goal for all the foams. Some of them are at 40 millimeters of mercury pressure, but at 60, we, we tend to get cessation of flow from these injuries like grade four liver lacs or mesentery artery injuries. So what's interesting with the UK research is that they believe that it, it actually produces a titratable Reboa zone one effect, as well as the zone three equivalency that had been known about. So that's sort of the next sort of pursuit, that and management of cardiac arrest, both medical and traumatic cardiac arrest with the device is, has been our focus. But from the hemorrhage control standpoint, the non-compressible torso hemorrhage is probably the most compelling area to, to go into. Hey, you and I have a mutual friend who's a fantastic person and researcher, Dr. Jason Rawl, who actually needs a PhD that works in the research lab at Lackland that is one of the authors of the paper in which you mentioned earlier, where you talked about out of the 59th medical wing. He, he was part of that research team. Tell me what challenges you found you had to overcome in regards to issues with the translational basic science research and application of the junctional tourniquet and human use. Because that's always the question people have is, well, you, you can find something in animal models, but then how do you actually get it to where people can use it? Well, it's, it's so, Jason is wonderful, by the way. We, we love Jason to death. Uh, Jason is uh, an independent researcher. Uh, he doesn't give me a hint about what he's doing until after it's complete. We benefited because every study he's done has, has been a very positive one for the device. He's been very interested in the idea that the physiologic effects of the device can be dramatic. And so, yeah, in, in 2017, he did the best study looking at equivalency between Zone 3, Reboa, and our device. But you're asking about this translation between bench research, basic science research, and, and the implementation. Jason's actually been responsible for some of that, and I'll explain how. So in 2017, he did two studies that year, his lab did. One was the equivalency study with Zone 3, Reboa. The second one was on traumatic cardiac arrest. Okay, so as an ER doctor, I've told paramedics for my entire career, if they showed up and there's trauma and somebody's heart stopped, don't do CPR. You're not going to get those folks back. They're, they're gone. And, and there is some truth to that because you have to be able to give blood. So in traumatic cardiac arrest, folks die because the tank's empty. And there's, if there's no blood to pump around, the heart, being a muscle, becomes ischemic and ultimately dies because it doesn't have blood and oxygen. Jason did a study that looked at, it was a porcine model, 70 kilo Yorkshire pigs, I think, where he bled them to asystole for three minutes. Then he put on the device, the abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet, gave blood and did CPR. 
And he had an 83% return of spontaneous circulation. And that was like mind-blowing. I mean, we I've never thought of that. And there, there's studies out there looking in a dog model at giving blood and doing CPR and traumatic cardiac arrest, but it doesn't really, it's not really effective. It's definitely not effective just to do CPR. When you provide that sort of zone three Reboa effects, you're getting a bump in mean arterial pressure. And as Jason points out in his article, you actually don't just cross clamp the aorta, you're cross clamping the IVC. In fact, this is one of the reasons why there's a greater efficacy and physiologic change with the AAJT than Reboa. So there's no valves in the IVC. And so Reboa, you get this mean arterial pressure leak, basically, because you're losing blood out of the IVC. And with the AAJT, you're just sort of cross-clamping the whole body, if you will. So when Jason published that, it became very interesting and it began to raise questions about emergency implementation of this. And so the Australians were the first to put it to a test. So an Australian Air Ambulance Service in 2019 responding to scene flights on traumatic cardiac arrest patients, applied it. They had about a 22% return of spontaneous circulation. However, their asystolic times were very long. I think the mean asystolic time was 16 minutes. And we believe that after four minutes, you start having ischemic changes that kill organs. And so a lot of these patients, I don't think anyone left the hospital neurologically intact. But it was interesting because... Even that was an improvement based on what we thought. So in November of 2021, in San Antonio, the University of Texas San Antonio Fire Department began enrolling patients in a traumatic cardiac arrest study because they felt like they could get to them a lot faster than 16 minutes. This last October, some interim data was presented by their primary investigator, C.J. Winkler, at EMS World Expo. They also had about a 20% ROSC. However, because they got there quicker, their 20% left the hospital neurologically intact. Well, that, that's, that's pretty big. And then at the same conference, the Ukrainian vascular surgeon that we're working with came over and he presented some very interesting data. And I actually didn't know he was going to present this before he actually presented it. But in fighting in Bakhmut, Ukraine, in the summer of 2022, in June, he had six patients that came in. And one of the problems when we, are, we have casualties that come into a treatment facility, if they arrive with vital signs or maybe they've lost vital signs just prior to arrival, is emergency department thoracotomy, EDT. So it's a heroic intervention. The idea if they have trauma to the chest is clamshell open their chest, cross clamp the aorta, fix the hole if you can, and then get them to surgery. If it's below the diaphragm, you still clamshell open the chest, cross clamp the aorta and try to get the heart back and then take them to surgery and see if you can fix the problem that led to it. But even if they survive, and it's not very common that they survive, there are all kinds of costs to the patient for the thoracotomy. So he had six patients that arrived with vital signs and, and then died because of traumatic hemorrhage. All these patients, except for one, had trauma that was generally below the level of the nipples. So it felt like it was probably abdominal or lower. One had higher. He received an emergent thoracotomy. All six survived. He had 100% return of spontaneous circulation when applying the device, giving blood, doing CPR. And interestingly, after they filled the tank and took them to damage control surgery, they were able to discontinue the use of the AAJT and maintain normal pressures without vasopressor support. 
one of the patients could not be evacuated to a higher level of care due to the combat that was going on at the time and ultimately expired. Of the five that remained, three were lost in follow-up because they don't have a trauma system where they can track patients. However, two of them he remained in contact with, and at the one-year point, both were alive and neurologically doing well. They both left the, the hospital neurologically intact. So we're in the process of doing a larger study in Ukraine right now on the device in use in traumatic cardiac arrest. And we have the support not only of the vascular surgeon that we were working with initially, but the chief surgeon of the military forces of Ukraine, sort of their surgeon general of the military as well. So you've had a lot of experience in military medicine, still working with military medicine. If you were talking to somebody who came up to you and said, hey, I'm interested in joining the military and doing something in the medical field and research, clinician, what advice would you give them? Oh, gosh, I think everybody's an innovator. I, I think that I would tell them, take the opportunities that are afforded you. Don't be scared to step out, volunteer. My time in the military was extremely good for me, my family. It put me in a situation where I was exposed to a lot of problems. And so finding answers to some of those problems has been very rewarding. And, and, and then I'd also say, don't be scared of, the process. So I think a lot of people have ideas and then they're like, well, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to get a patent. I don't know how to protect that idea through intellectual property protection. How, how would you make a prototype? How, how do you form a company that could be responsible for something like that? How do you manufacture things? All of those problems are solvable and they've all been solved before from the standpoint of process. But Often, I feel like good ideas sometimes are left on the table because somebody just is a little scared about the process on how to pursue them. We've been speaking with Dr. John Crouchhorn on Wardock's podcast. John, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation. And thank you for what you continue to do for the folks that are fighting for our freedoms and you help them bring them back home safe. I appreciate the time and thanks for the opportunity to speak with you guys today. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.